Hello, thanks for tuning in to episode 10 of Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reed Omri, and this month I'm sitting down with Nashville-based venture capitalist Monique Villa. Her startup experience spans venture capital, strategy, business development, and operations. And she's also worked closely with a wide range of talent, from student entrepreneurs to global leaders. She is currently founder of Modern Capital and an investor at Mucker Capital. Growing up as a child, did you have an entrepreneurial spirit? I did. I was actually a serial entrepreneur by age four and five. I had several businesses going. You were running businesses when your friends were in preschool? How did, yeah. you, how did you work this out? <laughs> well, I had very understanding parents that parted with our dining room in favor of an art gallery. I had a really high-end art sales business going, and I had two customers, uh, my mom and my dad. And then I also ran a publication that focused on what was happening in my neighborhood. And I would publish that uh, on a weekly basis. And pretty sure I snuck in some other pursuits in there too. But I had a receipt book and all of the odds and ends that are needed to run a high caliber business. Where did this come from? I honestly have no idea. I think it was one of those things where I was always intrigued by the operations of any retail front or you know restaurant or places that I visited as a kid with my parents. And so... I wanted to recreate that at home and, and figure out if there was a way to, to turn a profit. And, and I was always somewhat profit-driven in that capacity, so I've, I'm definition of a capitalist. Did you have an identity as an entrepreneur? Did you ever consider that when you were young? I had no idea. I just, I, I loved numbers and math and, and when things added up and I could find some sort of logic in the process. The word entrepreneur didn't really cross my radar until at least college. And what were the next steps from being a child entrepreneur to where you are now? How did that spirit shape your career? So I think the biggest thread that was pulled was really being observant and getting to meet people who were entrepreneurs themselves and you know, that really started out when I was in college. I learned about this company at the time that was relatively small called Tom's Shoes. And I found out about it through a friend who, you know, told me that there was this really new novel business model. And so I went on their website to check them out and found out that there was a place I kept clicking through and clicking through and found out there was an opportunity to intern with the company. That was really the the start of the entire process was leaning in and then being able to work around people who were building something that was novel. And, and in Tom's case, they were really defining a new category. And that was really the catalyst that was going to lead to me, you know, eventually working in the capacity that I am now, where I'm working very closely with companies through the perspective of, of a service provider and, and providing them capital. With Tom's, there's the mission-based side. Was that what initially drew you to Tom's? I thought it was really compelling that with something like a purchase, which is something that many of us do multiple times a day, that there would be this other action beyond just the purchase itself. The idea that I could buy a pair of shoes and that beyond that, a pair of shoes would be given, that was something I hadn't encountered before. Also thinking about it is you know, this is not a nonprofit pursuit. This is a way to leverage a for-profit model, but to turn around and do well for the broader global ecosystem. 
that piece is really what sparked my interest. And I thought, you know, if this could be done for shoes, I'm sure it could be done in many other categories as well. About a year ago, I was in Austin and I visited the coffee shop that Tom's runs. Have you been to that? I've been to the Tom's coffee shop in LA on Abbot Kinney and then also in London. And the one in LA is actually across the street from where the original first brick and mortar pop-up store was that I worked on in 2008 as an intern. So it's been fantastic to see, you know, going from, I did something like I bought the cash register that we would use and like bought it online for $100 or something, um, to now there being this full-blown scaled retail concept. It's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, that's gotta be really neat to be able to look back at that. From where you stand now, what do you look for when considering investing in a business? There's a range of, of answers that get tossed around regularly in terms of what is the rationale behind you know, making an investment. And in reality, venture capital is a high-risk asset class. So there's this concept that what you're investing in, there's parts of it that you're probably not going to be able to rationalize. Uh, when making the decision because it is early oftentimes and especially the type of investing that we do with mucker capital you know it's sometimes there's a concept and there's really not much else and, and other times there is a product and there's traction to point to but even still those numbers can be as limited as you know being in market for one month and so it's it's hard to extract things that are concrete but I think to answer your question what we look for is really super focused energetic founders that have a unique insight. So people who have identified something that's truly novel and unique and that have a level of focus around how they plan on taking this on long-term. So these aren't pursuits that someone is going to spend a few years on and then move on to the next thing. These are people who are signing up for a much larger commitment. And so I also try to feel that out in the first conversation, just how committed these people are to this concept and, and how willing are they to iterate and iterate really quickly because that's what it takes. And then beyond that, it's really the vision. So what can the world become? You know, that's something that I'm super grateful for is that I have these what if conversations on a daily basis with entrepreneurs and say, what if this was possible? Or what if this entire, you know, piece of, of the globe could function more efficiently and, and serve people better. And, and that's really, we're looking for that drive and, and the vision, but we're also looking for the, the early days execution and willingness to, to evolve. When you assess the entrepreneurs, what characteristics do you look for in terms of diversity? I think diversity of background is one of the most undervalued pieces of the industry that's now being brought to light. And it goes back to having a unique insight. So someone who has spent you know, time in a certain field or grew up in a certain place or has a certain identity they associate with strongly, that's a unique insight. And, and that's something that I can't offer because I have my limited set of insights and, and so does the next person. So really, I think someone who can really leverage that unique insight piece and then also identify the unique insights of people that they would recruit uh, to form their team and be that magnet, someone that's going to have that draw to be able to build a team because the team's going to be the biggest and toughest thing to, to tackle, quite frankly. And so 
beyond that, also looking for people who are just entirely self-aware in addition to that, right? So people who are going to say, well, I have this going for me. I'm, I'm unique in this way. Here's the places that I'm weaker and, I, and I'm going to need some support. And, and that self-awareness is really where the magic happens. And you'll see companies become explosive because of that balance, that fine balance and, and making sure that the company is not going to assimilate so much that they can't outcompete, you know, other incumbents or people who are entering the market. You appreciate the candor when your startup founders will say, we're really good at this, but you know, we could really use some help in this area. Absolutely. Yeah, my ears perk up every time. <laughs> so it's a pretty, I'm pretty formulaic in that sense is those are some key words that, you know, aren't said all the time, but the people that offer them up early on and say, this is what we do really well. Here's what we're going to need. That's part of the vision piece is we're going to build this very large thing. And if we think we have all the answers, we're probably not going to succeed. That's again, the self-awareness of if I want to build a billion dollar business and I think I can do the entire thing on my own, it's probably going to be a really hard path. Is that also where you can add value through your own personal networks where you can suggest, hey, why don't you go speak with this group of individuals and see it? there might be a really good fit? Absolutely. So one of my biggest tasks on a seven days a week basis is finding those people that will bring value to the companies that we invest in and, and that we're supporting. So looking for unique skill sets across a range of industries and specific roles and expertise. If someone needs to build out a data science team, then I'm on the lookout for data scientists and, and or marketers. You know, I'm constantly looking for marketers and things that will give a company a competitive advantage. And so it's that much easier if a company will say, hey, we're going to need this. And then I have my marching orders and I go find it. Or hopefully I already have it in, in the arsenal and can, and can enlist those people. Do you spend time intentionally each week in building and growing your network? I think intentionality means maintaining and, and cultivating, right? And so many of my emails are outbound. It's one of those funny things where there can be this assumption that VCs sit back and wait for companies to just sort of appear in their offices or, you know, have their pitch decks at the desk. But I'm constantly thinking about who I need to reach out to and follow up with, or, you know, I haven't talked to someone in six months and I'll send them an email and find out what they have going on. And it's just this constant cultivation. And if there's opportunities to meet new people, then I do. But it's really finding people that are values aligned and are going to have a willingness to, to continue in some level of communication. Historically, healthcare moves slower than other industries. What might those of us in healthcare learn from industries that are in a constant state of innovation? I'm thinking, for instance, something like fashion. One of the most fascinating trends that I've seen in the last decade has been this cross-pollination between industries. So instead of an industry staying in one lane and, and only interacting within that industry and only having uh, connections and, and tracking progress that's made in that industry. I've seen some, some of this cross-pollination in areas like entertainment and in fashion where these two seemingly disparate you know, concepts collide and create something new. And you know, I think in fashion, which, what's really interesting there is this idea of personalization. And that's a trend that I think we're, we're starting to see 
and I'm really personally interested in around healthcare. But the cycles might be a little bit different if you're designing or talking about something like an outfit versus someone's medical records or <laughs> some prescribed care plan from a physician. So, you know, I think looking outside of the rails of healthcare is something that you can definitely take inspiration from other industries in and say, what does healthcare and agriculture have in common? Or what does healthcare and music have in common? Or like, what are these sensibilities that can be derived in terms of how people behave and think and what people are looking for? How do they interact uh, with various industries, right? The user experience and user interface piece, like how can we optimize that and Frankly, most of that takes rapid iteration. It's, it's having a constant dialogue with your end user. Will you see founders that come from entirely disparate industries like agriculture and healthcare coming together? Absolutely. I think that has been increasingly facilitated by this concept that there's these startup ecosystems that call for more of a focus on the stage of the founder in their life cycle as opposed to their industry. So first-time founders, for example, wanting to meet other founders, just how do you build a business? And that business could be in any industry. And so I've also found that in terms of talent, because talent is relatively scarce and it's, it's viewed as scarce, if you're looking for your next you know, head of product or your next compliance officer, oftentimes people will be open and willing you know, to make a change. And so maybe they spent 12 years in law and now they're spending time in food. You're like, oh, you're doing consumer packaged goods. Like, where did that come from? And it's because founders and innovators are constantly driven to investigate. And part of that investigation requires stepping out of your comfort zone. I've been paying attention recently when I've had interactions that have been terrific interactions with people in the service industry. A couple weeks ago, I was at the automobile repair shop. And the person who was assisting me was off the charts awesome. I asked him, how long had you been doing that? And he said, oh, well, I used to be a mechanic. I was a mechanic for six years. And for two years, I've now been doing customer service. And I asked him point blank, have you ever thought about going into healthcare?" And his response was, I, I don't like blood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the notion of helping others, I think, is something there are so many industries that are service or hospitality where we can take that perspective and have lots of opportunity by attaching it and including it in within healthcare. Are you finding that in healthcare when we use analogies from other industries that that's actually a helpful way to pitch a new concept? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think having a shared vocabulary is something that benefits all sorts of of topics that people have a hard time contending with. And so I saw that in financial services, for example, fintech companies and banks realizing that they needed to create a much more accessible vocabulary so that people could opt in and participate. And I think that's definitely the case for healthcare. I mean, if you listed your set of vocabulary and I put mine next to it, it would look a lot different. And so making that focus around the user, the end user and the experience, and, and part of that requires disarming people. And your idea around the service industry is super compelling. I personally spent seven years in restaurants between high school and college, and I entirely attribute my work in VC to my time working in restaurants. 
Thinking back to how can we have some level of empathy or understanding about what people are looking for and how we can meet their needs, whether it's in healthcare or in fashion or in entertainment or whatever it is that we're doing. Do you have any suggestions for how we might promote a startup culture in healthcare? It really is a multi-step process in, in any large industry, but especially in healthcare. And it starts with people that are expressing an interest in entering healthcare, really setting up the expectation, whether it's in med school and wherever else that they might be pursuing their role within healthcare, but to really frame it as here's where we are today and we know where we've been in the past, but here's the problems that we're really trying to solve for the future. And, and having this problem solving mechanism is how some really great ideas are born. Like, what are the top three issues uh, that healthcare is facing today? And if I had to make them up on the spot, one of them would definitely be around paying for it, right? Like, how are, how are people going to support, you know, prices long-term and bills that show up in 10 different parts in their mailboxes and everything else? You know, how am I going to do this? Because really, the end goal is to live a healthy life and not have health ailments you know, prevent you from doing so. If you set that out as the goal and then apply that across however many medical students, and that's just one tier, right? That's not even approaching the subject of everyone who's currently in a long-term healthcare career and ha has the experience under their belt in that capacity. But if you really just set this focus around what what is the end goal for everyone and and make sure that you're aligning incentives along the way, some really compelling solutions are going to arise. It's instilling that spirit around being an entrepreneur and, and also being open to what's possible. For many people, venture capital seems to be this monolith. It's impenetrable, it's like way beyond me. I don't even know where to begin to understand it. What are some resources that our listeners might use if they're interested in learning more about venture capital? In the For What It's Worth column, I didn't know what venture capital was six years ago. I can personally speak from experience that much of the industry to date has operated in an insulated capacity, and I think that's something that's being pushed to change. One of the things is really thinking about it as the broader food chain. So venture capital, specifically institutional funds like Mucker Capital and, and other firms I've worked for, you know, we have our own investors that, and, that we're reporting to, and so we're really just going out and fundraising to have a fund that we turn around and then deploy into this portfolio of companies. When interacting with a venture capitalist or looking for resources, remembering that the venture capitalist is really at the bottom of the food chain because we have our own <laughs> investors. And then oftentimes our investors have investors. And so we're just a, you know, a data point essentially on a full portfolio of, of different asset classes and we're in the high risk categories. In terms of learning about it, with that under your belt, there's some really great blogs that I read every day. Um, one of them is from Fred Wilson. It's avc.com. Uh, he has some really great daily thoughts that he shares and it ranges from things like how do you manage founder dynamics because that's a really tough spot to be in and it's good for people to understand how difficult that whole process could be in, in interacting with the co-founder. He talks about things like Amazon coming to New York and what that's going to mean in terms of transportation and housing and opportunity. 
Another great writer on the topic is Brad Feld out of Boulder, Colorado with Foundry Group. He also does some regular blogging. Fred's wife, actually, Joanne Wilson, also does blogging through Gotham Gal is her publication. And I think having some subscriptions along those lines, reading Crunchbase every morning and, and keeping your finger on the pulse of what's being financed and for how much and what types of industries, those are some really easily accessible places to have a frame of reference as to what's on people's minds. Well, thanks for sharing all that terrific information, Monique. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, it's been wonderful to have you as a guest. And for our listeners, please let us know how you promote innovation and entrepreneurship in your own organizations on Twitter. You can connect with Monique at, at Monique Via and myself at Reed Omery. Stay tuned for our next episode of Innovation Activists next month. Thank you. Thank you.